Mr. Heater is North America's most popular brand of portable heaters and accessories. With products featuring the popular Buddy Series, Forced Air Diesel Kerosene, Forced Air Propane, and Garage Workshop Heaters, Mr. Heater will extend your time outdoors, on the ice, in the hunting blind, in the garage, or camping with family and friends. Check them out at www.mrheater.com. And check out their podcast, the Highland to Hardwater Outdoor Podcast, on your favorite podcast provider. Hi, I'm Ian Sherwood. As a songwriter and musician, I've traveled through countless small towns, heard incredible stories, and witnessed some of the amazing ways in which people in towns and cities across this vast country have woven their lives into the land they live on. It's made me think about the way I interact with my own environment and the natural world, where my family's food comes from, what impact I'm having on the planet, and what we're all leaving behind for our kids to inherit. So now I'm on a mission to learn about how I can tap back into the essence of where we all come from. Today, with so much at our fingertips, it's easy to lose sight of the most important connection we have. Welcome to Connected to the Land. The idea of food, where it comes from, how to grow it, how to prep it and whatnot, is something we talk a lot about here on Connected to the Land. At the time of this recording, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and the idea of food scarcity, not to mention all of the Instagram pastimes like sourdough and kombucha, are top of mind. How these things connect us back to something more sacred, more fundamental, is at the root of what I'm trying to uncover. And sometimes in the digging, what I come up with is deeper than I expected. The countless small communities across the country that I've traveled through and stayed in are peppered with folks who have made choices to eat and source food that is grown and obtained in a small radius from where they live. I wanted to know more about this growing movement of short-distance diets, so I called up Rich Francis, a renowned chef, host of the new show Wild Game, and Top Chef Canada contestant to get his take on eating from the land. But what I got was an honest and important conversation about the meals we make and how they connect us to more than just the land can be a vector to larger conversations about indigenous rights, post-colonial trauma, and the healing power of food. Rich, thanks so much for uh, for talking to me today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, means a lot for me to be talking about this uh, connection back to the land. Yeah, um, well, hey, and we're going to get to that very, very soon. But at first, I want a little bit of background. We just met. So yeah. I kind of want to know, uh, what was your childhood kitchen like growing up? Um, it started very early on. Like I, a lot of my tastes and smells, like I grew up in the Northwest Territories. Uh, so a lot of those tastes and smells that I remember back then started along on the Peel River in the, the, the Gwich'in settlement area by um, Fort McPherson, Northwest Territories. Um, so there was a fish camp that we'd always go up to every, every summer. We'd spend our summers up there. And so I was, you know, eating the fish. I was eating the caribou, picking the berries, speaking the language. Uh, that was my early kitchen. And then, mm. you know, through whatever, you know, my dad, you know, he dealt with alcoholism and all that. And my mom moved us back to Six Nations here to her reserve. Um, growing up here, it was my grandma, you know, like who... She, she grew the garden. She, you know, my grandpa had a farm, so I grew up on the farm. And so that's kind of like, I guess, where my work ethic comes from. But um, I never knew, like, all those things would shape me into being the chef that I am today. I never ambitiously set out to be a chef. Like, I was an iron worker, carpenter. 
but it was when I became a chef is when I had to go back to those those memories and that connection, not only to the food but to the language and all that stuff. That's kind of so interconnected, and that's how I was able to kind of get that push into being the chef that I am today. Right. I mean, I, I think I read that that chef was not your first job. So, can you remember? No. Can you remember an instance where like this is it? May, it suddenly became clear, like as you mentioned, a few different jobs you had there. Yeah, yeah. No, I I was a carpenter in London at the time, London, Ontario, and um, it, it was just a really brutally hot summer. Mm. It was like fifty degrees, and so we're putting up walls, and there was no breeze, and so I ended up getting a couple uh, heat strokes that summer. Yeah, and I thought I told my wife at the time. I I told her I I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't think I can. But at this point, uh, Food Network had started to become a, a household name. Um, I was, you know, after work, I kind of just clumsily flipped through channels and just, that looks pretty cool. Bobby plays, Bobby Flay is cooking a steak. Shit, that looks pretty good. Right, right. I never thought nothing of it. And then, um, finally just a lot, like the, the straw that broke my back there was just, uh, another week of heat strokes. And I, I finally said, I, I can't do this. And my wife was like, so what are you going to do? And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to become a chef. <laughs> And uh, yeah. well, I had everything. I had like my pension. I had all of that. Like I was set. I had a really, really good wage, and right. and I was going to take a gamble on something I knew nothing about. <laughs> it was just a hunch. And um, to say that didn't go over very well would be a lie. But um, <laughs> okay. you know, to this day, yeah. she she stuck by me. Yeah. Um, but we were not together. But you know, like she still supports me. Um, and even then, she's like, okay. If, you want to do this, do this. And then, so I went to Stratford chef school. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never, never cooked professionally a day in my life. And I still have no wow. idea how I got into the program. Uh, Stratford was, you know, at the time it was like a prestigious school and I, I didn't, I didn't know nothing. <laughs> totally agree. And I, but I think that's the one thing that was to my advantage because I, I brought nothing with me. Right. Um, there was a pull the there somewhere, though. Obviously, I mean, yeah, there, something there, there, made you I think about it. Actually, yeah. to, to be honest, it really wasn't. I just wanted to cook, and it was huh. a means to an end. It was a means to an end because yeah. I just wanted to forget that my past, and I because there was I, I didn't feel anything there, and mm. I just wanted to cook. And then uh, the moment I stepped foot in a kitchen, there was something inside of me that right. um, that recognized this. And to this day, I, I still believe it's like my my food DNA, my food pathways from like my kids, my ancestors and all that stuff. And I, I took, I was a sponge. I, I absorbed everything. And fast forward two years later, I, I finished top of my class. I got the calling excellence award and wow. I've never used a resume to get a job. <laughs> so it's, it's been pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. My first chef like, oh, at the time was David Lee and that, we, he had the best restaurant in Canada. And that, that was my first chef. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I've talked to a few people on this podcast who are mm -hmm. on this podcast who are chefs. And, you know, I don't think any of them started off in the food industry. Like, I don't think they all mm -hmm. had completely different jobs and then later in life yeah. came to it. I mean, I don't know what it is about the food industry, but people often don't when you're a kid. I mean, I'm sure some yeah. people do, but I just, I haven't met one person yet who says, yeah, this is something I always <laughs> wanted to do. Yeah, no, I, I didn't like, I, I remember even in, in chef school, I just wanted to cook. I, I, I wanted to go to Italy. I wanted to go to Spain. I wanted to to travel, but that that's just not the way it would work out. But it was in chef school that I kind of figured out that I wanted to do something with indigenous food. 
Right. And I, but I didn't know at what level or or where it would take me. You, you talked a few minutes ago about how, you know, growing up um, in the Northwest Territories, you, you know, you have these fond memories of the foods that were always being prepared in your home. And I wonder if maybe there's a certain aspect of the fact that sometimes we're just surrounded by, it. like it is literally right under our nose, not, not to try to make yeah. a poor pun or anything, but you yeah. know, no one ever really thinks of it as a career because in a lot no. of cases, it's just what we do for survival. Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, but in my own experience, mm-hmm. those, it was just very easy to pull up from, from that point. I, I didn't know, but they were just very, very strong memories for me. Like right. the smell of moonlights, you know, yeah. smoking, you know, the fish smoking and like all of that. I, I was just, it was just very, very vivid. And when the money became a chef is when I was able to re-trigger those memories. And it was very easy for me to go back. And that's kind of the foundation of my cuisine is those early tastes and smells mm-hmm. from not only Northwest Territories, but also here in Six Nations. And ironically, matriarchal women who have been my my influencers, my my role models in doing all of this. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, Rich, you've placed on Top Chef Canada. Um, you have a couple of TV shows under your belt. We were talking earlier about uh, mm-hmm. before the before we recorded Red Chef Revival. Yeah. Now you've got Wild Game that's coming together and looking really good. Yeah. Successful business yeah, yeah. owner, operator. Mm-hmm. So I guess where I'm going with this is that I feel like you're probably one of the more qualified people I've asked this question. How can mm-hmm. our understanding of our food and the way we prepare it connect us back to the land? Um, I think it maybe starts with kind of unlearning everything we've, we've been taught before. Mm. The way I've kind of been doing it is like, you know, we, we kind of have a, a tendency to label things like Canadian cuisine or whatever, or yeah. Newfoundland cuisine. But right. it, I think it starts with honoring the, the traditional territory that you're actually in. And I think once you have a better understanding of that is when you kind of get, if you know the food, then you know the people. And so when you yeah. do that, I think that you're going to be able to remove a lot of the colonial bullshit and a lot of the um, the narratives that came with that. And then you're going to actually be able to understand it for what it is. Right. And, um, and then by that, then you're going to start to make more connections, not necessarily um, through, but I guess on a personal level to things that maybe, you know what, we don't know what we don't know. And then until, until then you're, you're going to start, you know, the veil is going to kind of come over your eyes and you're going to have an aha moment in it where mm-hmm. it's going to be like, wow, okay, all this time I didn't know. I think that's maybe the first step. Well, on that, that's really interesting um, because it, it kind of recalls to mind uh, a clip that I saw when I was doing my research for this. Um, you're in a Soyuz in BC. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it was an episode of Red Chef Revival, which again is a critically acclaimed show that you were in. And you made this meal yeah. from ingredients found within a mm-hmm. hundred meter radius. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Uh, yeah. No, like, you know, the people of the Soyuz, like the Soyuz Indian band, they, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm assuming it's the first episode. It was the Cougar episode. Mm-hmm. The premise of that, that, uh, or the theme of that show was uh, survival. Right. So um, the, the Soyuz people, they didn't, go out and get cougars but they did during times of survival um somebody happened to have a cougar there we didn't actually didn't go out and um and harvest it it was already harvested prior to us getting there okay and it wasn't until i got the backstory of the survival of the people of the soyuz and the four food chiefs that i started to build this plate that i started to build this story um through through their experience 
uh, in times of, you know, when things were really shit for them. And then there's, there's this cactus that grew everywhere. Completely looks inedible. Can't do nothing with it. But the moment you apply fire to it, it becomes this amazing, like, something edible and something huh. tangible that you can experience. And so that that's how, you know, like, for me, indigenous food, you can't just put a piece of bison and wild rice on a plate and call it indigenous food. It's, right. it's kind of a, I don't know. It's not for me. Maybe that goes back to what you were just saying about how we got to have to get rid of all this, all these colonialized ideas about what Canadian food is and maybe even what indigenous food is. Yeah, like, so it, it for me, it had, it absolutely has to tell a story of time and place. Right. So indigenous food is like the ultimate tarot experience that you can ever get to. And um, so, sorry, just go back. To, you just said something that just reminded me of something. Yeah, no, I was just I was just saying that you uh, you were talking about the idea of getting shedding the shedding the the ideas oh, of yeah. colonialized food and and Canadian yeah. cuisine and what does that even mean? The colonial version that we or the people of Canada have come to know is just that one that one story that that colonial food system is the one that almost killed us that almost wiped us out, you know? So we, you know, we, we were given rations after our food was almost kind of driven off and taken mm -hmm. away or killed away. And so that's how Bannock was born. Right. Bannock was born out of trauma. Bannock was born out of um, dislocation. And, um, and with that came diabetes and obesity. Right. Uh, we were never diabetic or obese prior to that colonization. Um, so it's only 80 to 100 years old for first name some people, and but it's become an epidemic. And I think the only way right now that we're going to fix that is going back to the way it used to be, getting our bodies to realign with our food memories and our food DNA to kind of realign us back into that that mindset. But the colonial palate is probably the biggest challenge we have as Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And not only for myself as a chef, but um, just on a personal level as well. Because it's hard, man. Colonialism really fucked us. So Yeah. you. I mean, you mentioned Bannock. And I think a lot of people who have any kind of knowledge of what Bannock is, I mean, there's some people out there listening who might not even know what it is. It's like an enriched flour fried bread. Is that... Basically, it's, yeah. Yeah, it was so, like a Scottish thing that they brought over and introduced. If, if I'm, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, it's just our bodies just never never like was able to process that and, yeah um and that's that's the result of that um but what else are we supposed to do so bannock for us it's you know it's here to stay it's become sadly part of some of our traditional um in our ceremonies and stuff but um there is that generation that that's that's all they know because yeah. of that trauma so indigenous food it, it's rooted in trauma but if we can kind of find the positives and by going back to uh, the pre-colonial ancestral diet, um, it's, it's hard. It's very hard. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, um, yeah. that's my challenge as the modern indigenous chef is how do I, how do I do that? How do I make that exciting? And um, I think there's a lot of storytelling that, that has, to go, has to go with that. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm constantly picking the minds of uh, elders, but there's one common theme that you see is that the, the food, the traditional food pathways and the language, mm -hmm. those are so interconnected because uh, there's that one generation that still holds that knowledge. And sadly, that, not, that, that, that generation is dying off. So that's why there's that sense of urgency right now to, to get there and get, get, 
get these stories from the land and the people and, and to, to have that. Yeah. I mean, what I'm getting from you, um, consistently and, and I even, I sort of felt this too, just reading up before we talk, but this, Mm -hmm. it's all connected for you, isn't it? I mean, it's not just, Mm -hmm. not just where the food comes from, but the idea of indigenous cuisine, and we can unpack that phrase as well. I know you've got some, some thoughts on what that is, but I mean, but there's a clear connection for all of this, isn't it? And it's not just the food. Yeah. No, because I this morning I was just writing about uh, people ask me what modern indigenous cuisine is. Yeah. So it's not a, it's something that you're actually going to experience. It's actually a verb. It's actually a call to action. Mm. Um, I, I use food as my vehicle to address that. Things that indigenous people, issues that we face today as indigenous people, like um, truth and reconciliation, assimilation, uh, diabetes, obesity, um climate change and uh food insecurity food sovereignty that's what modern indigenous cuisine is so it's actually not a cuisine per se it, it it's a verb it's a call to action that addresses all of this like you know let's let's look currently at uh what's happening in, in nova scotia right now and mm-hmm. uh, with the lobster fisheries like mm-hmm. how many tags we're giving out to you know like the the settlers and and there's like three percent of the Mi'kmaq that take up those tags. Yeah. And they're on they're they're on the traditional territory of the Mi'kmaq in their in their lands and their fisheries. And how the hell do they only have three to five percent of that? There's no First Nation person in this in Turtle Island right now because of the resources that we have on our on our territories should be living in poverty right now. It's angering. And as an indigenous chef. These are the things that I'm I'm shedding light on. This is what modern indigenous cuisine has become for me. That's why it's not it's not it's not a cuisine. It, it, it's a call to action because um, you know this land back movement that mm-hmm. we have right now. It's not to say that we want the physical, tangible land back. I mean, it'd be nice, but we want to have the governing voice on what actually happens right. because I think if social led innovation can happen on a uh, grassroots level. That there'd be more than enough for everybody. So I, I myself, I have uh, white settler heritage, and mm-hmm. so I'm listening to everything that you're saying, and, and I think the, mm-hmm. you know, there's a there's a cop out that can be taken from this, which is, you know, they see you on TV, they, you know, they mm-hmm. they read something in on Route magazine or whatever, and they go, oh yeah, this is what a what mm-hmm. a great recipe, that's yeah. great, thanks, Rich, but. Yeah. But really, and what I'm getting uh, either, and I was going to say either intentionally or not, but it sounds very intentional, is that there's a huge door for a conversation that that you're opening here that needs mm-hmm. to be had. Um, and it's and it's not just, I mean, it might start with food, but that's not what it is. It's it's bigger than that. And clearly, it's all very mm-hmm. important. I'm not digging too deep here, am I? I mean, that, that sort of seems to be the direction you want to go. You want to have a larger conversation. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Like, I, I, I really love to have these candid conversations that are going to open the hearts and minds of I guess, mm. quote unquote, Canadians. and yeah, this is some. This is a conversation that we should have had yesterday. You know, so right. it's yeah. glad we're here. I'm glad we're here. Yeah, yeah, me too. And uh, I, I want to get myopic just for just for one little second. So, if dialing it dialing it back to someone who's just tuned into the podcast, who maybe yeah. thought that they were like, oh yeah, I want to learn a little bit about you know how I can connect myself through food. You know, that I mean, these are massive issues that need to be talked about and they need to be had and everyone should be thinking about them. Where does, where does someone start? You know, if they're just sitting in their kitchen at home in, 
in Stratford or in Red Deer or wherever across Canada and they're thinking to themselves, okay, I, I want to start somewhere and develop mm-hmm. this connection. And what, where, do you have any words of advice on how someone can, can do that? Yeah, ultimately right now, I just think because there's so many Indigenous voices out there right now that are really tr- speaking the truth into a lot of these issues. Like, you know, we talk about truth and reconciliation, but it's nowhere to be found right now. And right. the only thing that we're, we're breathing into existence is back on, back on us. Yeah. So there's a lot of Indigenous voices, a lot of Indigenous leaders out there that are speaking like absolute truth into this. And I think if you find those voices, then you can start to make that connection again. Right. And think with with me as an indigenous chef like if, when you come eat my food like i want you to come and taste that trauma i want mm. you to come taste that solidarity i want you to come taste this resiliency that we have as indigenous people and then you're going to finally get an understanding of who you really are and so this is my contribution right to yeah. this everything do you like to make yourself available for the people who are eating your food for these kinds of conversations like uh, you said you wanted to have them taste the trauma like um do you again these this is these are important conversations to have like how do you how do you then go about having this conversation with someone who's eating your food i don't know i want them to to experience it for one and just yeah. to kind of you know they're going to taste something like kind of brand new i guess but then again like i want to have a conversation around like how did this food get there what were the challenges like what like you know oil and gas pipelines are are, are um kind of you know in the traditional part of where the caribou used to roam for the Gwich'in people and now the, the, where they're birthing grounds. So those are no longer there anymore. And that, those are the, you know, the, the, the security that the Gwich'in people had. Or, you know, if you look at the people of Ganawagi, like the traditional fisheries there, like the sturgeon, and like, it's all being wiped out, man. Yeah. And it's like, why are these people obese? Why are they sick? You know, and it's because mm-hmm. we have to, we're eating highly processed shit food for one. Mm-hmm. But then our access to this this food has has become almost impossible because there's so much colonial infrastructure and it's way like maybe the RCMP right now because they're actually stopping the Mi'kmaq from going out to go get you know they're they're infringing on our on our livelihood yeah you know and it's 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 sad at first and it's angering and then it's just disbelief and just like are we fucking living in this like is this really happening you know yeah. And so it's like, man, like there's so much against, but again, through everything, like we've been through so much shit as indigenous people, we're still here. Like we're in COVID right now. I started this seventh fire initiative in the midst of a pandemic and I've never been so busy in my life. So I I think we're going to thrive. I think we're going to be okay. Ultimately. And I think Mm -hmm. the future of food ultimately is going to be indigenous. So, and Seventh Fire, it's a catering company, right? And you, you host these pop-up reconciliation dinners? Uh, no, it's not, it's not catering. It's, oh, okay. uh, I do, uh, it's like a destination dining experience. So people okay. from all over Canada and the U.S. are coming. Um, they're coming, and I'm not serving panic to any of my guests. I won't, you know. I'm probably the biggest panic racist you ever meet. Right. But uh, <laughs> so people are coming, but I, yeah. but then this, these are the conversations. When they come to the dinner, the conversation that me and you are having, I'm having with my diners. I'm creating that awareness for them to experience the food, but also to experience the things that we we're facing as indigenous people. And I want to talk about those dinners too. Um, I just want to just take it back from just one, one step here. Cause, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I read an interview that you did in Enroute magazine and, uh, they asked you what is indigenous food and you answered, and I have the quote here, I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you what it's not. 
Uh, what do you mean by that? It's not it's not the fry bread, it's not the bannock, it's not the the food that we had to kind of put together to survive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's part it's part of the history, it's part of the the story, but it's not it's a very very small portion of who we are, but that's like one of the most impactful one because, you know, if you look at the people of the Plains Cree, like the buffalo, like they their people were paid to, to kill the buffalo in order to, you know, get rid of our food. But there's so many, there's a misconception with indigenous food, and that's that, that we're only that one era. Yeah. We have to look at like pre-colonial, post-colonial, pre-residential, post-residential, you know, uh, modern and future. Like there's so many different different venues and avenues that we need to, to look at. And I mean, going back to chef school, like I wanted, that's all I wanted to do was cook. I didn't know I went level again, but now right. I'm starting to work with universities in like anthropology departments and having these conversations. Like it's huh. it's pretty wild, and I, I never knew that my career would take me this way. And it's all again like with the theme of your podcast yeah. connecting to the land. Anytime I lose my way, that's how I kind of find my way is connecting back to that. You know, I really love that that you're working with an anthropology department at a university, <laughs> you know? Cause yeah. that... No, like there's several, like I've done yeah. several keynotes and with these like universities and speaking with professors and right. like doctors. And it, it's so like, no, I'm. So what do you talk about in your keynote? I, I speak from a grassroots level. Like when I, when I started to do these, these talks, I kind of got intimidated right? because man, like how the hell do you talk to a doctor? But you know, right. you I know things that they don't. I right. some I, I didn't you know, I, I started to realize that some of my own, but also people are starting to guide me to that, that there's there's that experience that you they don't have. Yeah. That practice there's the practical the practical experience or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um I, so I just speak from a personal a personal um my personal experience and that's it. What I've seen and what I've heard and like the stories from the elders and right. uh, man, those elders are smart. They, mm-hmm. they know what they're talking about and they know what they're doing. And, um, but we're, we're starting to lose our way a bit yeah. and we have, and, but you know, like nothing was ever lost. It was just forgotten. So we're gonna, we're just going to keep pushing. And, and just on that, I mean, I, I find this fascinating, you know, talking to, you know, a university and, and well, not talking, I mean, and people talk to universities all the time. That's not necessarily fascinating, but um, the idea of of things being passed down through time. And, and I guess I wonder if maybe the conversation has ever come up in one of these um, one of these talks you've had at a university about where. Uh, like how far back can you go before things are just lost entirely how, before pre-colonialization? I find that I can't go too far because some of these people don't even know some of the, like the most recent stuff that's happened. And like, you know, a lot of them are visitors to the country and they don't know. And then once they do, and it's it kind of is, that's, I think what gets that, that ball rolling, that momentum. So it's almost like, kind of like, I have to go back. It's frustrating. Mm. That's one thing I wish they would do before, before, like, I guess people like myself or, you know, other voices come to speak that they yeah. give them like the history of what's happened. So I don't have to do it. A bit of context. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so once they get there, then, then you can kind of start from there and then like kind of go on, go on your thing. But, uh, mm. but yeah, like I find that there's a lot of ignorance, um, which I guess, you know, in 2020 is kind of a bad thing, but, um, 
it, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to get it out there. Yeah. Awareness and indigenous voices. So it's, it's, it's a good thing. Well, I mean, I'm happy that you're here talking and helping me out. That's for sure. Um, so Rich, I found a, well, okay. Case in point, uh, I found a phrase online and maybe you can explain it to me. Um, what is resistance cuisine? Basically what I'm doing right now. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's basically just resisting the, um, the colonial infrastructure. It's, uh, the stereotypes, it's the, it's everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I find there's a lot of, you know, when I cook, there's a lot of emotion that comes into it. Um, but also too, when I'm filming, um, these shows and I'm, I'm working with the elders and, um, man, there's a lot of like trauma and it, it, these shoots become very, very heavy. Right. Uh, by the end of them, like I'm, I'm done. Like I'm, I'm completely done because it's not only like the intergenerational trauma within myself. It's like, you pick that up from them as well. Yeah. And it's heavy, right. man. It's really, really heavy. And, um, but then you do serve this food and like, I've, in my instances, like I've, I've served food to, to these elders where it, it took them back to just before they were taken away at like five years old, the residential school and they're fucking in tears, man. Right. Yeah. And it's like, oh, fuck, you know, it's just, it's, it's heavy. And so, how do we find the positives? How do we move forward? And that's where we are as indigenous chefs right now. And um, so we're not just cooking, man. We're we're, we're not we're not just feeding people anymore. I, I can hear the weight in your voice. I can I can hear the responsibility that. I mean, you're an important mm-hmm. figure in the culinary world world of Canada now, just point blank across you know across the board. But but still, there's a heavy responsibility on your shoulders. I mean, you seem like a man who has a purpose beyond just making delicious food. Yeah. I don't know. But the thing is like, I'm just like every other indigenous person here. Mm. We, we all have these, these things attached to us. My dad's a residential school survivor. Right. Um, just, just all everything. There's nothing like we're, we're kind of all the same. That's why I think we, we have this solidarity as indigenous people. Like it's just, you know, it's pretty cool to see, but yeah, I've got another quote that you that i picked up from you um you said uh the last thing i want is for indigenous cuisine to become something of a trend that that can put food scarcity uh security and sovereignty at at risk can you can you explain that to me a little bit yeah food sovereignty and food security it's not a trend it's a lifestyle and uh, i think now more than ever um you know like suicide prevention addiction that has a lot to do with food sovereignty hmm. because if we don't know who we are as people, then we, we get lost and that's, you know, um, that dislocation, but food is the quickest, fastest way to help us find our way. And, um, indigenous food at that ancestral, ancestral, traditional ancestral foods is the, in my experience, the quickest, fastest way to, to have a better understanding of who we are hmm. and where we come from and, it's it's really cool when I see when I do these workshops, the cooking to decolonize uh, workshops, and like especially in inner cities where there's you know a scattered um, indigenous population, and so I come to these schools and there's maybe a couple indigenous kids in the in the crowd, and yeah, you see this it's like um, I'm, I'll bring moose in or something, and you see them 
And there's this light bulb that shine that kind of comes on, and you see it kind of silently that happens in them. And I, I I firmly believe that that's their 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 food DNA. Right. That's kind of yeah. lighting on in them, and and you see that, and so that that's the, that connection I'm talking about to the land. And so it's no matter where you are, like you can you can always get that. And um, so that that's why I, I feel this work is so important. And yeah. it's not for it's not for for me. Like it, yeah, I, I want to make that available to them, but also it helps me, um, on my path and uh, on my own journey as well. So it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool synergy that happens with that. So, yeah. Um, I want, I just thought I have this, um, this story of you and I want you to, I want you to tell a story now for me to tell a story, Mm -hmm. but it's, uh, when you were at the Stratford Chef School in Stratford, Ontario, you mentioned you, you attended there and you were given a challenge to come up with a bistro concept. Mm-hmm. Is this ringing a bell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you can you tell me about that and how that maybe influenced you and and that challenge motivated you? Yeah, it pissed me off at first, mm-hmm. but um, I had this bistro concept to do a bistro on here on Six Nations early on my first year, and uh, the instructors just said that will never work. Right. That will never work. Why are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. And it's like. I was like, no, like this is what I, I this is my bistro. Like I, I want to do. This. Why do you think he said that? I don't know, because I think he's used to like the Michelin stars and all right, that bullshit. Yeah. And ironically, right now is I'm living that dream right now. Yeah, yeah. and it's working. And um, so yeah, I, I think yeah. about that often. I think about that often because uh, just the certainty in his voice that it would never work. Something mm-hmm. inside of me didn't believe him, and um, I, I haven't been doing this spitefully. It's taken me all this time to get here, but when you have that dream, it's, it may or may not look exactly the way you thought it's going to look. Yeah, but it feels how I felt that right now. Yeah, it felt that way. The vision was there, the feel, the, but the feeling I felt then is what I feel now. It's not it doesn't look the same. It feels the same. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. no, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to jump around too much, uh, but I do yeah. feel like this is, uh, you know, your company Seventh Fire is maybe a little bit connected to that motivation that you had back in Stratford. Um, and we talked yeah. a little bit, but I want to know more about. And I, I think they were. I read it being described as reconciliation dinners, but correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe that's not what you're calling yeah. them. No, that, that, I, I would never say that. No, okay, all right. <laughs> I yeah. Okay, well, maybe. Well, can you tell me about them though? They're like they're like pop up dinners, though. Are, are they not? They're are they? Kind of pop up dinners, I guess. But I never wanted the Seventh Fire experience to kind of be. Is never is never meant to be a restaurant. Right. So it never will be a restaurant. So it's more of an experience. You're gonna come. You're gonna experience these foods you're going to see like the moose that we're going to get they're going to be like especially this time of year we're going to mm-hmm. be going up to get moose and but we're going to start having these conversations through through the food and you know the essence of the seventh fire is like seven generations it's a anishinaabe prophecy that uh you know seven generations ago is when all the the negative stuff started to happen for us as indigenous people and i think you know the the prophecy kind of says that in order to make things better, we have to go back seven generations ago yeah. to when there wasn't that and then bring it back into the future to make something brand new using those old ways. And that's the essence of my, my food. 
you hosted one of these dinners in Vancouver uh, not too long ago, and mm-hmm. I heard you explain that, that there was a woman who came up to you afterwards and she was crying and she said that she hadn't eaten food like that since she was young, before she had gone to residential school. Yeah. The and, only way I was able to to capture that was through the elders. Yeah. You, the stuff that I'm learning, you can't find in a history book, let alone a cookbook. Yeah. So... I was only able to replicate that through verbal teaching. And I did that. And then not, not knowing what was going to happen after that was the result. Yeah. And like, Holy man. And I was just, I was standing there, I was standing there in disbelief and I was just looking at her and I just, there's this, man, there's just this powerful pull towards each other. It was just, there was that connection. And I think success for me, success is not a Michelin star. Right. That for yeah. me, there's success. And um, I, it's never been my agenda to chase one of those. Like Cultural significance above all else has, has been my agenda through, through all of this. And, and for me, that's how I measure my success. Is You know, it, yeah. And the fact that, the, you know, you went and, you, and you, ha- you hosted this dinner and you had that connection, you had the connection with the woman at the end of, of the mm-hmm. dinner, but it, that it caught you off guard, I think kind of speaks to, mm-hmm. you know, just how powerful this is. Like the, the, something as simple as, mm-hmm. as eating can bring back all these emotions and all these memories and uh, mm-hmm. that we just, you know, we can have, I mean, this is a connection that we're losing. I mean, that's kind of where we started the whole conversation, you know, like how... Yeah. How do we how do we cultivate this? You know, how do we get it back? Yeah, I'm not saying you have to go back seven generations, no. but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just start, just yeah, just just get out there, just make yourself available, keep an open mind, um, yeah, and just look at what some of these things that are happening, like these pipelines that are going in. Like we all know what's wrong, but yeah. we're you know no everyone's willful ignorance is it's just everyone's willing to look the other way and it's infuriating but you know it's the indigenous reality right now and uh i don't know like indigenous people make up like 20 percent of the population but we're we're defending like 80 percent of the land yeah rich i mean uh i I could just talk to you forever about this this is uh Mm -hmm. this is enlightening it's a fantastic conversation we are coming to the end of of uh Mm -hmm. of the time of the podcast though um so uh, listen, I, I'm I'm going to throw you a little softball here, so we can uh, talk about this for. So I, I do, and I actually honestly want to know what what is your favorite food to make when you get home? Oh man, I like I just ate my dinner the other night. Um, it's really weird. Chefs don't eat their own food for whatever reason. Okay, I mean, so that's we, a weird we, thing we, to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we we do, but we don't. You know, and after right. the dinner, I was like, man, I want like just like some fish and like. I wanted raw fish and like some like lettuce with vinaigrette. Like I, I, oh, I yeah. wanted something light. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, we went for sushi after and I was just like, this is what I wanted, you know? Yeah. But, uh, how I cook at home, it's, uh, like you can't, it's really difficult to eat like that hundred percent, like pre-colonial, pre-indigenous. It's, uh, you do crave like the Thai, the foe, you know, you crave, you crave mm-hmm. all of that, but uh, yeah. the cheeseburgers and stuff, but my work food is um, like my my home food is it's very light. In the summertime, I could almost become vegetarian. Right. Almost mm-hmm. not not quite. Mm-hmm. Just because of what's available, uh, I, the challenge is vegetables. And now I'm kind of really mm-hmm. um, immersing myself in indigenous plants right now. And I think that's the challenge right now. Is, is 
how making that exciting and right um do you have a garden yeah oh yeah oh yeah definitely yeah yeah but like again like talking about like last year i, I agreed to do a dinner um with the emphasis on uh, regenerative agriculture and i didn't know what the hell that was and so i actually had mm. to google it and um here it's basically the iroquois growing system of leaving the least amount of carbon footprint on the environment hmm. the three sisters is not just a three sister it's it's a growing system that the iroquois have been doing for thousands of years yeah and that's now been covered up with something called like a ridiculous word like regenerative agriculture. So if indigenous led, that's what I mean. Like if indigenous led social innovation can happen on a grassroots level like that, like we are going to change the face of food. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's another discussion. So. I know. Well, it is. It's a great capper actually to this conversation. And we should, uh, I'd love to talk to you again about all the stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about, Rich. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. Well, there it is. That was great. Thanks so much, Rich. Yeah, I know. Thank you for having me. It means a lot. Connected to the Land is a PV Industries podcast produced by Village Sound, and I'm your host, Ian Sherwood. A special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Mr. Heater, North America's most popular brand of portable heaters and accessories. You can find out more information on Mr. Heater, as well as this episode's guest, at connectedtotheland.info. If you enjoyed this program, you should consider subscribing. Also, you can check us out at connectedtotheland.info, our affiliated website and a great resource for homesteading, farming, and all things connected to the land. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.